Lovey Ajayi Jones is a New York Times bestselling author and an incredible speaker. I've actually had the good fortune of sharing a panel with her and Sir Richard Branson, among other people. And let me just tell you, she is a force of nature. Uh, she sits at this amazing intersection of comedy, of social justice, and what she calls professional troublemaking. And we talk about professional troublemaking through a number of lenses, one of which is her recent book, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. Now, the book's been out for a few years, uh, but it hit the New York Times bestselling list, I think at number five. And she's been writing for somewhere on the, on the magnitude of 17 years, originally as a blogger. Uh, and we recount her story of thinking like, what am I doing? I'm just writing. I'm, I'm writing a little blog. That went from her writing in her, uh, her spare time to leaving her job, getting a gig covering the Grammys, and suddenly recognizing that, wait a minute, I'm doing it. I'm doing the thing that I always wanted to be doing. So now, 17 years on, she's a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, she's got an amazing TED Talk about getting comfortable being uncomfortable, which if you're familiar at all with the show, I say that all the time because I think it is such an important thing to remember. It is like a muscle, right? Getting uncomfortable, hitting publish, putting yourself out there, taking a risk on yourself. And Lovey epitomizes these things, which is why I've wanted to be on the show for a few years now, and we made it happen, people. Her work's been featured in the New York Times, NPR, Forbes, Inc., Fortune, Essence, Chicago Tribune, a lot more. She's got an amazing podcast also called Rants and Randomness. Um, but today she's on the show, and I cannot wait for you to hear what she has to talk about. You're going to love this conversation. Before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor, Creative Live, and then we're off to the races with Levy. Hey, y'all. Hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, I am the founder of that company. But I got to just be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, frankly, nothing even comes close. And it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So of course, I'm biased, but I, I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close. And you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts. Okay, that's it, that's my soapbox. That is the commercial, and we'll hope to see you over Creative Live. Now, let's get back to the show. Lovey in the house. Welcome to the show, Lovey. Yo, Chase, that is a rousing <laughs> intro for real. Like, <laughs> it's It still feels incomplete for those of us who know you or have shared a stage with you. Um, it really does feel incomplete. And I just, you are everywhere lately, and rightly so. I mean, you've you're, the work... I, I bought the hardback when it first came out. Um, what was that in 20, was that 2017? 2017 is when the hardback came yep. out. The paperback came out in 2016. Yeah. And, and I just reacquainted myself with the book in the Kindle edition. And I was fascinated to, as I, as I, I love this, all of the things that people have highlighted 
in, and um, your timing, you know, you, you wrote this book, whatever, a couple of years ago, you've been, you know, sharing stages with the likes of Richard Branson and owning stages all your own uh, for the last, you know, three or four years since we, since we uh, spent time together. And yet now you are the tip of the spear for a very important conversation. And I'm wondering what you can share with us about what does that, what does that feel like to have um, the world come around and just uh, connect with your work in an all new way in, you know, two years, three years later, it's got to be um, empowering and inspirational. And I'm sure there's a host of other things that you'll share with us. Yeah. So I wrote this book five years ago. I wrote, I'm judging you five years ago. I have my copy here. And I wanted to write the book that was both timely and timeless because I wanted this book for people to read this in five years after I wrote it and say like, this is still relevant. But one of the gifts would have been where some of my words here would have expired. Mm-hmm. And actually one of my, some of my words expired yesterday. So mm-hmm. in on page 89 in mm-hmm. chapter eight, my privileged principal chapter, I mm-hmm. wrote about, let me see, I'll just read it for you. I said, it's not okay that there's still a sports team called the Redskins. If you're still reading this after 2016 and you're like, no, there isn't, then it's because we all finally got our lives together and stopped being jerkwads and changed that offensive name. You might be living in a better world or at least one that it isn't so bold in its awfulness. So as of yesterday, that is at least something we can say. Boom. Done. Okay, I'm hoping there are other things in this book that I'm going to be reading in a year and being like, I'm so glad we did that, too. <laughs> it is uh, far, far too late to be checking some of those things off in culture's arc. Um, but, yeah, that is a huge, huge step. And can I read something else that I'd highlighted from Chapter 8? Absolutely. I'm not interested in living in a world where my race is not a part of who I am. I'm interested in living in a world where our races, no matter what they are, don't define our trajectory in life. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you can comment on that for me. It's just so prescient. It's so timely. Yeah, that that chapter that I wrote was about privilege because I feel like so many people misunderstand what privilege means. And when we talk about what it is to be a person of privilege, oftentimes people think it means you're pointing the finger and saying you never worked hard for anything. You never went through any hard times. When privilege is really about the things that we have that we did not earn, the things that push us forward in life that we did not work for, right? That put us in a better position than other people. So for me as a black woman, I am a part of two marginalized entities, being black and being woman. But I am also a privileged person because I am not poor. I've never worried about where my next meal is coming from. I'm not Muslim, so I'm not worried about who I worship being the reason why somebody attacks me. I am straight, so I'm not worried about whether the person I love is going to be offensive to somebody. So those are the pieces of privilege that I hold, and all of us hold hold a lot of privilege because if you're listening to the show, you have a smartphone. That yeah, you're that. you're in the Western world in <laughs> modern era. You pro yeah. Correct. And being white is one of the biggest pieces of privilege in the world that honestly, it puts people way ahead just because of the very fact that 
white privilege, white supremacy is the biggest like system of oppression that actually holds people down. So when people say, well, you know, the thing is I'm colorblind, I don't see color, as a way to affirm that they are somehow not a part of these harmful systems, I'm like, no, 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 you're not colorblind. Like, unless you're literally colorblind, which Mark Zuckerberg is, like he can only see, like he can't see reds apparently, which is why Facebook's logo is blue. But like, you're, he know, he can see somebody and be able to see that, well, that person is darker than me. So being colorblind is kind of like a cop-out. Mm. Not kind of, it is a cop-out. Because I want you to see my race. I want you to see that I'm black. Because I love my skin. I love my culture. I love all the things that come with it. My thing is, we cannot be colorblind. Because in this world, our skin does matter. But it matters in that it, it, it shows us kind of like, how we move through the world, the culture, what we hold dear. However, our skin color should not be the reason why we can win extra, or it should not be the reason why we can be held liable for something that we never did. You know, So I want people to recognize my color. I love it. But our race and our ethnicity should not determine how far we should go in life. Spoken. The whole book is, it is this amazing, um, I wouldn't even call it a tap dance because that makes it seem precious. It is like a bulldozer moving into all these different areas of life and saying the things that often go unsaid with humor, with wit, but with like cutting accuracy. And I just don't know how you develop that skill. Like, is that a gift? Is that from writing for 10 years on your blog? Is that, because right now there's so many people, one of the things that I'm trying to do with the show is there's so many people who have something to say, whether it's um, because of the time we are in culture right now, whether it is because the, um, it is, we're trying to shine a light on new voices, trying to amplify voices that may not have been heard right now. I just I'm looking for and, and I'm I'm trying to be a um, a shepherd for those who are listening and watching right now. And I'm guessing that there are well, I can see right now there are people from San Francisco, Detroit, Minnesota, Dallas, uh, another Texas, another we got a Seattle, fellow Seattleite, another Chicago, a London. So it's <laughs> what's up, your your fellow Chicagoan. Um, but there are people all over the world who have a voice yeah. and don't quite know how to use it. And as someone who has not just found their voice, but perfected it and, and has been able to carve out a platform for themselves and make their voice heard, I'm hoping you can give some advice to those folks because there's a lot of people out there who've got something to say and don't know how to do it. Yeah. Everybody's voices matter. Some of us just happen to have big platforms. Like, you know, you and I, Chase, We've been privileged with these big platforms so from our work over the years. And the work that we do is to talk about the things that we feel, the stories that we want to tell. And it's not that our voices matter more than others. It's just that we now have these big platforms to do it. I am a huge fan of encouraging people to use their voice wherever they are. Because here's the thing. You might not have a lot of money to donate to an organization. You might not even have time to go volunteer. You might not have access to like move a big lever, but in your place, wherever you are in the world right now, what you have access to is your voice. And I always wanna say like, 
it's not about even the big platforms that we have, right? I want to go beyond that because my platform is big, but the people that I know I can acutely affect every single day are the people who I know, who I work with, who I love, who are my friends. Those people are the people who I can use my real voice and my ability to touch them to make them do something good. Because I think we can peer pressure each other into good behavior. We can peer pressure each other into leaving this world better than we found it. So what I tell people is you have a voice. It's not about, I need to find my voice. You have the voice. It's already there. There's, it's not like out in the world for you to go seek. I think the problem is that the world teaches us to doubt who we are so much that we feel like we have to go looking for this person. You don't have to go looking for them. What you have to do is not question that person that you already are. So I've been able to build my platform, my blog, my book, my podcast, because I've doubled down on who I am. I did not spend a lot of years doubting who I was because here's the thing is when I started blogging in 2003, 17 years ago, mm. blogging and being on social media was not a thing, right? It was like nobody was considering a career. Being an influencer was not a category of career. It wasn't even a thing, right? It wasn't a thing. Everybody was just like, you're just playing on the internet. Yeah. But the gift of playing on the internet is that because I didn't think of, of this as anything but a hobby, I wrote in the way that was most true to me. I wrote as if nobody was reading because really there was probably nobody reading in the beginning. But what it did was it formed that muscle in my head of just writing honestly, of using my voice honestly, without pretense, without deceit, without strategy, without expectations. And that gift meant when people started paying attention to my blog, I was already this person. I was already writing like this. So when people stumbled upon my site and other people would share my post, because my platform has grown organically over the years. I wasn't the person boosting stuff. I wasn't the person like, okay, if I do this thing, this thing will come from it. I was just writing with that pure intention of this is just what I feel like doing. When people found my site, at that point, it was too late for me to be anybody different because this is already who I am. This is who I have put on paper. This is how I think. How I write is really how I talk in more structured format. When people read my book or read anything I write and they say, I hear your voice as I'm reading it, that is the big compliment. Because it means that whether you're sitting in front of me or not, whether I'm in a room with you know, Richard Branson or not, or Oprah, the person you're gonna get is gonna be the same person. And it's because I spend less time questioning myself. So my number one tip to people is, it's not about finding your voice. It's not about finding who you are. It's about doubling down on who you are and do it as thoughtfully as possible so it's not keeping it real goes wrong. Just be who you are. It's, it's already there. Just don't think, oh, I'm not good enough, or should I say this? Just do it thoughtfully, but do it in the way that is most true to you. It's so true. And the part you said about uh, so many people, I think, wait until they have a platform or, or they think they need to wait to have a platform to say something meaningful. And I was just wildly inspired by what you said about changing the people that are closest to you right now, your peers, your friends. Like, I think there's a, a belief just in sort of dissecting pop culture here for a moment that it's only when you have a hundred thousand people watching that you can have an impact. And you know, my experience, I'd be curious to hear your take. My experience is that it's actually just the opposite. It's the way you actually create a platform is by affecting the people closest to you. Correct. Correct. I, you have to be who you are, whether people are watching or not. 
You have to say what you have to say, whether people are watching or not. You have to be who you are in the dark and in the light. So before you looking for the 100,000 followers, before you're looking for this giant platform, what are you doing and how are you operating in the world with the people you love? You know, how are you holding the people in your sphere accountable to being better than they are? You know, are you in the room where people are making the racist and homophobic, the Islamophobic jokes, the transphobic jokes, and you're like, ah, I didn't say anything. But then you get on social media and then you post, it's not okay to do this, but it happened in the room that you are in and you didn't challenge it, which is the room that you can affect change the quickest and easiest. What are you saying on social? Which is why I'm like, don't worry about the 100,000 people. Don't worry about that platform. Everybody has a platform. Your platform is the room that you're in currently. So how I am holding my friends accountable, how I'm holding myself accountable is what matters most before I can worry about my followers. My followers are people who might never meet me. But if the people who trust me in real life, I can actually make them think something different. I can make them grow along with me. I'm doing my job. I just happen to tell what I'm telling the people I love, what I'm telling people on social media. And I think that's the power is we all have a platform. You do not have to be a Chase Jarvis or a Lovey to have something important to say. You do not have to be us to make impact. And impact doesn't have to be in the big things, in the big checks, in the big moments. Impact comes in the small things that we do consistently, like every day that somebody might never even know you did. That's where we move mountains. That's where we change hearts. And that's how we elevate spaces that we end up in. Mm -hmm. I remember, uh, so just to go back, uh, retrace thing we've, we've touched on, but haven't gone deep on. So we were, we were on, both on a panel yeah. It was um, and with Sir Richard Branson, and it was in San Francisco. We we dissected this for like sixty seconds before we went live this morning, and I remember in advance. I, I always love to know everything I can about the people that I'm sharing the stage with if I'm doing a panel or whatnot. And so I bought your book, and I laughed out loud. And I'm I laugh in the course of life pretty easily, and yet not when I watch films or or books. And my wife's sitting there laughing out loud. We just, this just happened last night. She's like, how come you're not laughing? This is hilarious. And I'm, I, I don't know, but confession, I laughed out loud at your book so many times. And when I refreshed, I went back and again, got the Kindle version just a couple of weeks ago. And it made perfect sense to me when I read this line that I want to, I want to feed to you that I read from you in the New York times. It says humor is the great equalizer. Yes. What do you mean by that? Yes. No matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter what our backgrounds are, no matter what our struggles have been, our stories have been, we can unite in laughter. Making people laugh is a universal love language. It is the thing that like instantly, even if it's a momentary chuckle, for that hot second, there was joy infused. And Humor allows people to bring their defenses down. So if I can make you laugh for that hot second, your defenses are down. So then when your walls are down, if I can now tell you something important, you're more willing to receive it because I just made you laugh. I just brought joy to you. My writing has always had that humor in it because I just, I'm naturally, I'm not a goofy person in that I'm still very serious in real life, but how I think Humor is really telling the truth out loud. Like the world is absurd enough to where you don't even have to add anything extra and it'll be funny. 
<laughs> right? So as a person who is straight talking, giving you the world as I see it, there's going to be some funny in it because the world is weird. <laughs> the world is weird. The world is weird. People are weird. We're all strange. Odd things happen every single day that are even better than fiction. So I never set out to be funny. I don't even sit down to write and say I'm going to be funny. I write honestly, and people are like, yo, that made me laugh. Because I'm like, yes, because everything is weird. That's why it made you laugh, because everything is weird as it is without pretense. So the gift of my writing is that because I make people laugh and because I bring this certain charm to how I create content, people are able to receive things from me in a way that they might not be able to receive from somebody else. Because I truly write as if I'm writing to my best friend because I want the person who's reading it to feel like they're talking to their best friend because I don't write at people, I write to you. How I write is how I think. So I'm having this conversation with you in my head as I'm putting this down on paper. So many made up words in the book, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Having, having written a book myself and how every people who haven't written a book might not know is that you have to go to bat for every one of those words because, uh, you know, there's an editor at the publisher who's like, that's not a word. And you're like, yep, but it's going in the book. And you're like, I don't know. And they provide some watered down <laughs> bullshit alternative. And you're like, nope, it's going to be bullshittedness. That is what's right. going in the book. And, they, yeah, and that's yeah. what I need in the book, the bullshittedness. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I have a whole glossary because, again, language, I know the rules of English. I know language. Once you know the rules, you can break them. So I break them, right? Because how we talk in real life is not just in the King's English. You know, we use the, we, the slangs. We use the weird, weird words that we make up. And I'm like, in my writing, the value of my writing is that you are hearing me talk. So if I'm talking, I'm not using these words. That's true. So my editors had to admit it and be like, yes. So I put a little glossary. I was like, here's what this word actually means. Here's a breakdown of the word. But yeah, that, that is extra true. And it makes, that's why it makes it feel like a conversation. It makes it feel like a conversation where you might not realize you're being pulled to the carpet and, and called to task, but you are. And because you can receive it because you laughed a few times, you're more willing to be like, I hear you. Okay, cool, 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 cool. And I think that is the value of just really doubling down on who I am. I want to retrace your particular story. Uh, you know, I said in my, you know, couple questions ago, I asked you about, um, your, you know, how you got into writing. You talked about starting to write on your own blog. And, but there's a bunch of, bunch of steps in there. Yeah. between starting to write in the dark when no one reads it and you're scared to share it and getting say a book deal. Yeah. And that is the black box where people do not know what's happening. Yeah. It is dark in that box. People are scared in that box. People are uncertain and, and afraid. And what I know to be true is that every person has gone through who, who, uh, has, uh, a platform or who has a book or a podcast or something that, that they've all gone through that. And I'm hoping you can share with the world. Again, the people who are watching and listening, tuning in from all over the planet. Now we just got South Africa in the house. Uh, <laughs> um, we want to know what this messy middle looked like for you. Messy middle. I like it. I call myself a 17 year overnight success. 
because people see me now everywhere and they're like, oh my God, it just feels like, I'm like, yo, this was not fast. This was not shortcutted. I went through the ropes and learned a lot of lessons that I'm like, oh my gosh, now I want to share with people because maybe their journey will be easier because mine was not that easy. So I started blogging in 2003 when I was in college. I was a freshman in college. I had just gotten a D in chemistry because I thought I was going to be a doctor. And then chemistry 101 happened. And I was like, you know what? Never mind. I don't even like hospitals. <laughs> I was like, let's drop that dream. But so my friends, friends peer pressured me to start the blog because they had started one. And I was like, okay, cool, cool. You know, I'll do a web blog because, you know, back then that's what it was called. <laughs> a web blog. You're going on the web to blog. Um, so I have my whole college career documented in my first ever blog. When I graduated in 2006, I deleted that old blog and I was like, you know, I've, I've grown it. I'm going to start something new. So I started AustinLoveyLovey.com August 2006 with my psychology degree with a love for marketing. So I had a full-time job doing marketing for a nonprofit, but I would go to work full-time nine to five and come home and blog. And, you know, my site started getting more and more um, attention. Within three years, I won my first award, and it was for the best humor blog award in the Black Web Blog Awards. Um, April 2010, I was sitting at my desk at work, kind of bored, because really, I was restless. You know, I would actually be blogging at work sometimes. I was probably a trash employee at this point, because I really felt this urge to not be there. But I wasn't going to quit, because I'm like, you're not a writer. Like you're just, you just have a blog. That's cute. What is going to actually pay you? I got laid off my job because they said budget cuts. I really think I got fired and they did me a favor. Mm -hmm. I got fired because it was ultimately like, I wasn't being great at my job. I definitely wasn't bringing my all. I definitely was not giving a hundred percent. I think I fell asleep in a meeting even one time. Like, so I feel like they got, they fired me, but they were like, let's just lay her off. Um, and it, I panicked because I should have been like, oh, my gosh, yes, this is the opportunity to really hone in on this writing thing and really give it some real energy and, and give it real credence. No, no, me being the stubborn person I was, I was like, well, I'm going to just go on monster.com and go find other jobs. So I would look for other jobs. But in the meantime, I would do what I was doing for my um, my old full time job, which is helping people tell their stories on digital in real ways. So I started consulting for small businesses and other bloggers um, to, to make money. So I started making decent money with that, but still looking for a new job. And I, at one point I almost quit the blog. I almost deleted it. And I remember like the day before I deleted it, I got an email from somebody who said the reason why she wasn't crying as she was sitting in a waiting room as her mom got chemotherapy was because she was reading something that I wrote on my site. And it was like, God was like, hey, I'm trying to tell you something. <laughs> stop, stop, stop. You should not delete that site. Um, so I just kept writing. And I was afraid to call myself a writer because what would come with saying this out loud, right? What would come with now owning this thing that I thought was a hobby that I couldn't fail? Because now I could fail it if I said I was actually taking it seriously. But every attempt that I would try to make to be like, ah, it's just a hobby, I would get another type of note from, from somebody who would say something just incredible about how my words had impact on them. So still looking for full-time jobs, still doing this consulting to make money. And then I got credentialed to do press coverage at the Academy Awards. Ooh. Yeah. 
usually people get get credentials for the red carpet. I have credentials for red carpet and backstage. Which wild, right? Was so, this just was this just pure charm? How do you? <laughs> so a producer who reads my who read my blog emailed me out of the blue and was like, "Hey, I love your site. I read your stuff all the time. I subscribe to everything. I don't miss it. You should come to the you, you should come to the Academy Awards and cover it." And I was like, "Huh? Is this scam? No, no." So yeah, I applied and got credentialed with her backing, like. So here I am. It was 2012 Academy Awards. I'm backstage eating Wolfgang Puck shrimp and chocolates because, of, co- of course, Wolfgang Puck caters the Oscars. And all the other journalists are, like, tapping away, you know, BBC's right there, CNN, Entertainment Weekly, all of that. And here I am, awesomely lovey, just in awe of the room that I am in, that I got in because of my words. And I feel like that was a light bulb moment in my head that was like, you're a writer. You are supposed to be doing this because look at where you have made by just being yourself, by just using your words. You've made it in a room where everybody else who's in here got here because they're part of a multi-million dollar media company. And here you are as you just tweeting, live tweeting what you're seeing and what celebrity just walked past you and who you just interviewed. That was when um, Bridesmaids first came out. So I interviewed Melissa McCarthy and Paul Feigs on the red carpet. And as a picture of me and Melissa McCarthy that I still love to this day. And I was just like, so I had that moment that was a complete shift in my career. Mm. Not because all of a sudden I started doing all these extra things. It was because my mindset shifted in that room. I finally was like, okay, you've been afraid to do this thing. You've been afraid to take this seriously. You've been, at this point, I've been writing for nine years online. But it took something so literal, like me being in the room, to finally say, your words matter beyond the hobby of it all. You can actually move people to think critically, to have joy with it. Double down on it. That is what you're supposed to be doing. Stop looking for full-time jobs and focus on this. It'll figure itself out. And everything that I was afraid of really was like, how do you make a career out of being a writer if you're not you know, a novelist, you know, if you're not the Toni Morrisons, how do you make a career out of just writing essays and your thoughts about the world? Well, I got offers to have, you know, columns and magazines. Brands started coming to me to be like, we see your audience loves you. They trust your judgment. We love the way you write stories, partner with us. So all of those fears got moved out the way once I actually committed to not being afraid of being who I really was, which was this writer who might not have had a path that was set in stone, there was no blueprint, there was no manual. And uh, two years later, I had the idea for my first book because I got plagiarized by a journalist who took about three paragraphs of my work, put it in theirs, did not give me any type of credit. And I remember tweeting, is there not a limited edition handbook on how not to be terrible at being a human? And I had another light bulb moment that was like, that's the book. I should write the limited edition handbook on how not to be terrible is really what I'm judging you to do better manual is. Um, got my agent, agent came out of the blue. Like two months later, an agent emailed me and was like, I read your blog. I think it's amazing. There's a book here. And I go, funny you said that. I have my book idea. 
so this was November 2014. January 2014, I wrote my proposal in two weeks, my 50-page book proposal. My editor, my, my agent got it February. He started shopping it around. I got my book deal March. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, that is like that is like being shot out of a cannon. That is like overnight. But as you said, a 17-year overnight success, right? You've been writing for nine years before you even put together your book proposal. Yeah, by the time I put together my book proposal, I'd been writing for 11 years. So I wrote the proposal in 20, end of 2014, beginning of 2015, got the book deal March 2015, wrote the book itself from May to October 2015. So I wrote this in five months. The book came out September 2016. I grinded and pulled in all my favors and, and had to get over any type of hangup that I had about asking for help. Because I was like, I need this book to hit the times list. Because when my book was being shopped around, it was considered risky because publishers did not think a Black woman who was not a celebrity could sell books, who was not a novelist could sell books. Oh, a book of essays? Eh, it's not going to do that well. Even with, I got a really low advance and I was like, oh, I realized that the point of this book is to prove a point that one, we can sell books, but also for me, I also wanted to be where this book became the one that people would use. Somebody who looked like me would use to walk into a publishing house and say, because this book did well, mine will too. So I used all my power. I borrowed my friend's power. I called in all the favors, wrote the dope marketing plan, just was like, this book has to do well because it goes beyond me. And the book came out and instantly hit the times list at number five and changed my life and also changed publishing and changed the way people deal with black creators who come in with book proposals. They take them more seriously. So yeah, that's how, that is the Cliff Notes version of the journey to where I am today. And now I'm writing book two and book two is really based on the fact that I want to tell people that my story is a series of me doing the things that scare me shitless over and over again. Things that have no guarantees, things that feel too big for me. The reason why I'm sitting with you today, Chase, because I've done that for the last 17 years and I will continue to do that. And all the things that have happened for me have happened because I have made it a point to not stop because something scared me. So that's why book two is called the Fear Fighter Manual. So book one is the Do Better Manual. Book two is the Fear Fighter Manual. Because I want people to be encouraged to know that, yo, like, the things that you're going to have to do, whether it's day by day, whether it's career, whether it's with the people you love, are going to be the things that matter because they're the things that scared you. You're going to have to do it because it's difficult. That means you're actually supposed to do it. You're talking... Uh, the language of people who are tuning in from all over the world right now. New York, Cincinnati, Karen is just, she's hands up emoji. Um, Indianapolis, um, Jerome says, thank you so much. So fair to say your message is resonating. I want to find out those times where fear actually kicked your ass. Because in order to write a manual about fear, um, you had to have, uh, you had to have received some good lessons from it. So can you share some of your, some of the times where you didn't persevere? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot, there's a whole chapter on fail loudly in my book. Um, but so there's a time when I was asked to speak at a conference in Europe. Uh, they emailed me and invited me to come speak. It was a tech conference. Um, and they said they don't pay people. Because, you know, after they emailed me, my team reached back to them and said, you know, here's her fee, travel included, blah, blah. They replied back to my team and said, you know, it's a, it would be a great stage for Lovey to be on. We don't compensate speakers. So I'm a part of a group of powerful women in business who really value sharing information. It's called The List. Shout out to Rachel Sklar, started it. And I went in there and I was like, hey guys, um, this conference hit me up. Is it true that they don't play, pay speakers? And within 15 minutes, I find out that they do pay speakers, just not speakers who look like me. You know, I found out this hierarchy of pay that they do is like, they'll pay white, white, white men to come speak, they'll buy books, you know, white women, they'll pay travel. And then black women who were asked to come speak were asked to basically spend our own money. It was a time where I was like, oh, wow. So this is really a system thing that they're doing on their part that's not fair to people who look like me, to, to, to black women, to black people. And a lot of us, people who live in marginalized um, identities already know inequality comes with who we are just because the world is trash. So I went to my agents and I was like, I wanna speak up about this publicly. I wanna tell the truth in this moment. But here's the thing, I am aware that if I tell this truth, I can take some financial hits. You know, maybe conferences will be like, ah, you know, we're not gonna, gonna invite Lovey. Too risky. Too risky, it was risky. My agents were like, it is very risky. Are you sure you wanna do this? Because this could blow up. And I was like, here's the thing. I have to be who I say I am, especially when it's difficult. And right now, it's really difficult because I know I can absolutely face harm because I'm doing this. And my agents know me. They know that I, if I am compelled to do something and I'm, I don't feel righteous in it, odds are I will. So they were like, all right, we understand. Because I said, if I can't be the one to speak up about this, who can? I am... At that point, I've been, I've been a professional speaker for about eight years. I've been on some really grand stages. I've spoken at a lot of big conferences. I get the feed that I ask for. I am one of the privileged ones. Am I wondering and am I asking the intern to speak up? Am I asking the person who just started speaking yesterday to speak up? Am I asking the person who was like, oh my God, I just got my first gig and I finally got paid $300 to speak up about pay inequality? No, because they wouldn't come with the same power that I do. So I said, okay, I have to think through what this fail looks like of, of being afraid. What is this, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of losing money. Okay, so I'm afraid of losing money and afraid of like losing opportunity. What is my worst case scenario? Okay, so if I lost, all my speaking engagements for the year and have to change my business model, do I still have other skills? Yes, I do. I still have my marketing, communication, social media strategy skills. I can do that. Okay, 
If I do get fired, will I become homeless? No, because I have a decent savings account. Okay, if I go through my savings account, can I end up on the couch of my mom and be okay? Yeah, I can buy I can buy myself by six months on the couch. So I ran all those scenarios through my head and I was like, you know what? That thing that I'm afraid of, the failure is very much an option that might happen. Can I move past it if that does happen? I was like, yeah, I think my I think my name can stand up enough to where I can tap on my friends, like, can you find me something that I can make good money at while giving value? I probably can. So I spoke up about it on Twitter. And it spurred other people to speak up about theirs. Like people started, there was a big conversation around other people who faced similar things in different industries. Funny enough, the thing that I was afraid of, which was like me hit, getting the hit, didn't happen. Actually, it was the opposite that happened. Forbes ends up picking it up. <laughs> the guy who runs the conference ends up sending an email to Forbes that doubled down on his dog whistle. That was like, he said, he oh. said, whether, yeah. <laughs> he was like, you know, maybe if our conference was in a more urban demographic, Lovey could command a fee. Oh. Ooh. I was like, wow. Well, thank you for say, saying that. <laughs> Prove my point that I'm not oh. crazy here. And yeah, it really, it was a gift because the times when we will fail, the lessons that we will tell each other, the lessons that we will learn are much better than sitting back and not doing anything. People pulled out of his conference. And it's a conference that made 12 million euros a year. So it's not a conference that's small. They had the money. They just didn't want to pay me. I think in, a, in the times when we are afraid of failure, failure really is moving out of an experience that you learn nothing out from. I think that's real failure. Failure is when you, you do not grow from an experience. Falling on your face is not really failure. Falling on your face, we all gonna do it at different times. It will happen. What happens, what do you pull from the face plant, right? It's not a failure if you can grow from it. It's not a true failure unless you face planted and stayed there. So I'm always like, if I face plant, I'm not staying there. So what really is failure? Mm. Well, I also want to just point out to anyone watching and listening right now that you did this idea of just just push through the fear. No, you did an actual, you were thoughtful about it. I think you said something about that earlier, like approach things with thoughtfulness. Even, you know, the raw, great parts of you, you still have to be thoughtful about it. It's not like an excuse not to be thoughtful. In fact, that's a great reason to be extra thoughtful. And what I heard you say about your fear is that you actually did, I think, uh, my my buddy Tim Ferriss calls it fearscaping, where you like, what's the worst that can happen? And you actually did the work and walked through it and like, okay, dear self, this this is like we had a discussion about this. We we ran the numbers, we ran the soul searching, we checked our gut, and all systems say we are clear to proceed. Forward, yeah, and that's honest. So I created a truth-telling guide because people are always like, okay, like, so what, how do I really figure out if I'm supposed to say something in the moment or even maybe afterwards about a situation that does not sit right with me? I actually created a truth-telling guide that people can download if they go to bethedomino.com, right? And in it, I put my process in doing the hard things. You can download it and read it and use it, print it out, write down the times when you're like, okay, 
I might have to do this meeting where I have to tell somebody the truth. Right? It, it walks you through the process that you should use to say whether you should do this or not. Because a lot of times we don't tell the truth because we think we're being impulsive. Mm. Or we don't tell the truth because we think we're somehow tripping. Like maybe I'm just being hypersensitive. There are a lot of times when we're supposed to say something that we don't strictly because we're not sure and have not quantified the decision-making process of it all. Quantify that decision. And I actually put my, my, my process in doing this because being the truth teller and being the person who's doing stuff that's hard, it's still hard even for me. Right? So it's not that I just wake up like, Oh, today I'm going to do hard things. It's going to be great. No, it's a commitment moment by moment to do hard things. And each moment you're making a different decision. So it's not like you're going to be brave one time, which means you'll be brave the next time. No, you being brave the next time is a decision you have to make for yourself. So I, I'm always like, people need the tools to do this. So that's why I created the truth telling guide. And, and I've, and people have been downloading and being like, this is actually really helpful. I'm using this before my meeting is my meeting with myself beforehand or meeting before the family meeting you know, that needs to happen. But yeah, figure out the worst case scenario. Can you actually move past it? If you will end up homeless and your kids have nowhere to go by speaking the truth, okay, maybe be quiet. But here's the thing though. That's why the people who are who have the power and the privilege need to be committed to speaking the truth so the people who have so much to lose don't have to put that stuff on the line. We got to put stuff on the line so this person who's looking for their next meal never has to. It is our jobs to stand in the gap for them. It is our jobs to use our voices to um, interrogate systems that are bigger than us so the people who are really at the margins, who are really suffering, have advocates who have less to lose. Like I don't expect people who have everything to lose to put to continue to put stuff on the line. Like Black women, for example, we are constantly the professional troublemakers. We're the ones who have constantly been like, guys, everyone get it together. And then everyone looks at us as the people who cried wolf. What happens if everybody else starts using their voices in that way? What happens if people start putting themselves on the line and allow us to take a breather? So the whole point is that everyone recognizing their power and using their power so the people who don't have as much don't have to continue to lose constantly and creating some type of equity in that way. So yes, I can put my name on the line and my voice on the line so the person who just started last week, won't have to. If I can speak up for her so I can insulate the harm that she will feel, that's when I'm doing my job. Mm. Truth. You can just hear how the truth sounds. It just sounds, it just sounds clean. It sounds clear. Thank you for speaking the truth. Christopher from uh, Maryland is a shout out. We got the Ivory Coast in the house, Fabrice. Thanks so much for the truth. Uh, Jerome just said, uh, I started my photography business at 61 years old because I did this fear exercise. Uh, I just signed up for your, um, for your uh, Be The Domino. And if y'all are out there in the world and you're watching on whatever platform you're on, if someone could tap in there, bethedomino.com so people can find this. Uh, later today and tomorrow when this thing's rebroadcasting, that'd be a big favor for, for Lovey and for the show. So thank, I want to thank you in advance for doing that. Um, I want to shift gears for a second. First of all, before I do, again, thank you for um, your lasers. 
you talk, speaking of plain truth, your TED Talk, uh, as I shared earlier, I've watched it several times, and it's about being comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. How, do we, how do we do that? It's in knowing that things will not necessarily feel good. Like, we live in a world that puts harmony over justice. We want to be in the room where everything seems cool. I don't want to be the person to ruffle the feathers, rock the boat, because it's uncomfortable. But usually the thing that rocks the boat that you feel like you need to do is the thing that is necessary. So knowing that the discomfort is okay, just know that it is okay. You will be uncomfortable because if you're in a room where the truth is not valued or if everybody's supposed to say, yes, that's great, without challenging something that doesn't feel right, of course it's going to be uncomfortable if you're the person who's like, mm, I don't know about that, guys. I don't know. So us being okay with that and charging forward regardless. So I don't believe in fearlessness. I think fearlessness really just means that I know I am scared, but I'm going to do that thing anyway, that thing that feels thoughtful and necessary anyway. So us sitting in the feelings that don't feel that good, in the lack of harmony, knowing that what we're doing is for the greater good is absolutely necessary. Mm. And there's there's probably a bunch of language in everyone's mind right now because we've all been that person, right? We've all been the person that says okay when we didn't mean it, that yeah. went along with the thing that was the wrong thing. Yeah. And um, whether it's from privilege or from ignorance or from – um, well, any number, regardless of where it's from right now, so many people are sitting where they're at looking backwards and saying, I've done that. Yeah. Is there, I'm trying to get people to go from zero to one. Yeah. Like, like just, okay. Now, how do you go from being that person who says, okay, who I'm going to use this word. It might be a little bit loaded, but betrays yourself or betrays the truth. Yes. How do you go from that comfortable existence to being uncomfortable. What's what what is the zero to one? How do we do that? Because right now there's not a not a cell in my body that want I'm speaking for a generic person who yeah. probably fits the bill of lots of us who are listening. Yep. I'm scared shitless. How do I go from zero to one? Going from a life that has been either comfortable or I have painted a picture that it's comfortable to being uncomfortable. Is it repetition? Is it some words we say to ourselves? Is it we read your uh, be the domino.com and before we go into to quote battle, how do we go from zero to one? That's a great question. You can start today. It's not don't hold the shame to the person who you think you were. Don't belabor the, ah, I should have stepped on something that in that conversation three years ago. Eh, that's a waste of time. It's all about charging forward, starting today. You go from zero to one in your next conversation, right? The next time somebody says something to you that does not feel okay, you pausing before you also nod your head or you pausing when you would typically be like, great, all is fine. And saying, mm, I really want us to rethink that before I can give my okay, or maybe even 
that does not sit well with me. And I really think we should go a different direction. That is how you go from zero to one. It's just in the next time you have the opportunity to tell the truth and you do, you choose the truth over the comfort. That's how you start. And literally it's a moment by moment thing. I, at any given time can stop telling the truth and I would not be a truth teller. If the next conversation I have, I don't tell the truth, I didn't honor myself in that moment. But then I can make up for it in the next conversation that I have, that I'm like, ah, I'm being called to tell this truth now. So you can start today. It's not about a grand life change that all of a sudden you become this person. It is in the moments. It is in the conversations. It is in the day-by-day things that we do. Because at any moment, we we can choose whether to be brave or not. So it is when you first choose to be brave, you just went to one. The next time, you just went to two. So it's a constant movement forward. It's a constant decision that you have to make. It's not a one-time thing. It's a everyday thing. It is a every conversation thing. So, you know, be gentle with yourself because a lot of times we don't have the muscle for the things that we haven't done or practiced. So it's going to be really hard in the beginning where you're like, ooh, I'm about to make something that somebody uncomfortable. Here's the thing, though. A no never killed anybody. And discomfort never killed anybody. So even the discomfort is momentary. Everything is temporary. So whatever discomfort it is, let it hang in the air. You know, let it hang in the air. They'll be okay. You'll be okay. You'll have a conversation. Having difficult conversations, it won't kill anybody. You know, so just, you can even say to the person you're talking to, this is kind of tough for me to tell you because I'm not used to saying this. Be honest. The truth is the truth, right? So even be honest with your discomfort. Say, this is kind of uncomfortable for me because I'm. this is like new, and but I want to make sure I'm honoring my word. So if you see my face distorting, that's why. Like you can even tell people the truth and how you're feeling in the moment and walk them through your own discomfort and say, listen, you know I love you. You know you're my best friend. This is not easy for me to say, but I feel like I have to call this thing out. Hey, boss, you know, I respect you. You know, I really take your word. Your mentorship is important to me. So this is not easy for me to challenge this this uh, campaign that we want to do. But I feel like it is my obligation to tell you this. So tell the truth, even as you're telling the truth. Yeah, this the my wife is a mindfulness teacher and what she coaches is to get into the body, because what does fear feel like? Fear is largely a big story. And then when you translate it to the body, it's yeah. like, oh, it feels like a tightness in your chest. It feels like you're a little short on breath. It feel, And then you start to realize, well, that's a lot what excitement feels like. That's what a lot of other feelings feel like. But it's really we got this story in our head. I love your idea of sort of qualifying it and as a vehicle for still getting it out there. Like, I don't, I don't know quite how to approach this. I'm uncomfortable. I'm trying to be honest and being comfortable in my discomfort. Uh, I just saw a comment come in from Jose just saying, thank you for being an absolute truth teller. Love this conversation and your posts. The question that Luis has is, or sorry, Jose has is, is humor the vehicle to get this done? Is it more important than anything else in this case? Or do, are, are there lots of options? No, lots of options. If you are not funny, don't try to be funny. (laughs) And honestly, don't even try to be funny, even if you are funny, unless you know this is going to land well. Just say it in the way that you want to say it. And if if somebody finds it funny, okay. Humor is not the only way to do it. It's not the only way to tackle it, which is why I'm always like, it's more more important to be authentically you 
than it is to try to force some type of uh, result, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not somebody who's known for humor or if that's just not how you think, don't force it. I think the truth can stand by itself even without humor, right? Humor can help, but the truth is the truth and it can stand by itself without humor. I think what is just important is you try to be as thoughtful as you can be. That's all you can do. What happens once you tell it is out of your control. Don't think, even with you being thoughtful, that it's going to land great. You have to be okay with knowing that everyone might not receive it in that way. But that's why I always say, like, three questions that I ask myself before I tell the truth. Do I mean it? Can I defend it? Am I saying it thoughtfully? If the answer is yes to all three, I say it knowing that it may or may not land well and knowing that because I can defend it, I can still stand in it. And if I need to apologize for it, I will apologize for it. But yeah, don't worry so much about the reception. Don't worry about the humor of it all. Just worry about, am I being as thoughtful as possible? If I am, let me say it. I think that's amazing advice. Also, Elaine Faber reminds us that humor is super cultural. So, but the truth isn't. The, the truth cuts through all of that stuff. So if you're not a, if you're not a master with humor, don't don't rely on it. I think we're, I'm gonna say it like you said it, which is if you're not funny, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't force nothing. How did you get funny? <laughs> I mean, again, I've shared the stage with you, and it's just like laugh out loud, and it's like it's just it's such a treat, and it's a joy. You're always funny. Is it something you worked on? Is it is there stand up <laughs> in your past? Like what's going on? I think the point of humor being cultural, Nigerians are really funny people, just because. We are very straightforward people, and I'm Yoruba specifically, and Yoruba language is very metaphorical. Like, it's very descriptive, and a lot of that humor actually translates to how I write. So when people are like, how did you come up with these words? I'm like, I kind of thought about it in Yoruba and then try to translate it in English, and in English it's automatically funny just because of the way the languages work together. So there's a lot of that. My family's funny. Like, we spend a lot of time just roasting each other. Like, we will make fun of each other just for the sake of making fun of each other and, like, cackle and be, like, laughing for days. And my mom, even though she does not think she's funny, my mom is hilarious because in her super seriousness, like, she'll she'll say something earnestly, and me and my sister will be crying, laughing, and she's over here like, what's funny? So, like, <laughs> I just come from a long line of shady people. <laughs> <laughs> who, do, who don't realize they're hysterical. And yeah, that's that's basically a lot of it. And then my friends are funny. Like we we used to be in high school just laughing at the cafeteria and like looking at the world and pointing out random things. So it's just all around me, it's just funny people. And I think um, that just comes in my writing and my the way I talk. It's it's but it's also yeah, the way you just you just exude it. It's 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 really joyful. It's really fun. Um, shifting topics slightly, but same vein. Uh, there's a title of a chapter in your book that I love, and I'm hoping you can share a little bit more about the meaning behind it, which is real G's move in silence. <laughs> real G's move in silence like gnomes, okay? And that really is from a little Wayne uh a line from a Lil Wayne song, he said, real G's moving sounds like lasagna. So I used it for the title of my uh, of, of a chapter where I talk about how social media 
is like everybody thinks they're in a reality TV show. Everybody thinks they are in a reality TV show. And in this world that everybody looks public, I even seem very public. What does it look like to actually keep some things sacred? As, as public as I might seem, I still am very private. Like when I got married nine months ago, a lot of people didn't even know I had, I was in a relationship, right? So it was like, all of a sudden they found out I got married and they're like, wait, when was she dating anybody? I know, y'all didn't know. Cause I was a real G who was moving in silence. Cause I think it's important to also keep something for yourself in a world that is very like showboaty as, and very like people are posting moment by moment of their lives, what's happening. What does it look like to still have a sacred space even as you are a public figure? So, and yeah, given now everyone's a, a public figure, right? Everybody's now public. Everybody's an influencer. Everybody's a public figure. But I'm like, you know what? Some things don't need to be shared with the world every day. It's so smart. It's so simple. It and yet, I think that's. Um, let me ask a, a question that I'm hoping to get clarity on. Then, if doubling down on you is the way that you stand out, the way you show up, it's the most most authentic and powerful that you can be. Yeah. And yet you still have to reserve some aspects of yourself for yourself and some things aren't private. Or sorry, yeah. some things aren't public. How do you reconcile those two things? Here's the thing is authenticity does not mean 100% loudness does that make sense for I'm sure truly myself even when i'm not telling you every single thought i have or every single thing i'm going through but if you ask me even authenticity could even say i'm not ready to share it that's still real yeah we think that authenticity means people need to know every single thing about us or everything that we're doing no it means that the things that we choose to share, we're being true about. You know, authenticity is being proud of who I am and who I am is the same no matter what room I'm in or who I'm talking to. Who I am is super versatile too, right? So in one way where I am the person who's really funny, at other times I might be the person sitting in the room saying nothing much and just like observing what's happening. That's also me. And authenticity is not trying to act like I am anything but who I am right now. So oftentimes people will meet me and expect me to be bouncing off the walls because they see my energy online. But I'm really kind of, I'm really very even keel, very kind of like calm person just in general. I do have energy. My energy is not, is more obvious when I'm talking. But when I'm just kind of like sitting there and I'm not the person that's being interviewed, I'm fine not taking up that space. So a lot of times people will think, oh my gosh, I met Levy, she wasn't high energy, she might have been funny acting. I'm like, no, I was actually just kind of enjoying not being the center of attention. I have no problem being the person just in the room that I don't have to be the one you're talking about. I don't have to be the one whose voice you're being heard. On panels, I even try to be cognizant of it, where I sometimes I'm not great on panels because I will sit back and just listen. Because if I let it, happen, I can dominate a space very easily. With our panel, that wasn't a problem. There's a whole lot of strong personalities on it, right? Yeah. But on other panels, I'm really hypersensitive to making sure that I don't take up more space than I should. 
So I'll actually sit back and just be like, okay, I'll make sure I'm not the first person jumping to answer every question. I'll make sure that, you know, if I answer the last question, I'll sit this one out and let other people and have their voices be heard. So that's authenticity in that I'm very aware and sometimes my energy and my my energy is best used being quiet. Hmm. Yeah, you don't have to you don't have to be something. You don't have to live up to someone else's thing. I think that's the the nugget that people get stuck in, right? It, it's like if you are, it's not you're a human being. You're not a robot that that only runs one program. Correct. I'm seeing I'm seeing comments right now. People are thanking you for articulating this because they feel stuck in their um, in their program. Um, I'm aware that we're getting short on time and there's a really cool project that I want to ask you about, which was inspiring to literally millions. And it is, I, I saw it from afar and then I just looked under the hood and noticed that you were a huge mover in that. And that was share the mic. Yeah. Incredible. So just, I want to give you a shout out and saying that was like so crazy inspirational and it's a huge swing and for maybe you could articulate, um, I think it was your, your, yourself and Bazama St. John, um, and some others got together, uh, share with us the, the, the nature of the project and the why behind it. So share the mic now was an action that I, um, founded with Bozeman St. John, Glennon Doyle, Stacey Bendit, because we all kind of had the same idea around the same time, which was like, how do we harness the power of prominent white women at a time when people are like, what do I do? How do I make sure that I am a part of having black women's voices be heard? So we came together and was like, you know, well, how about if we actually let it be literal? How do we, how do we get white women who are prominent to share their mics with black women so black women's stories can be heard, black women who typically would not be heard. So Glennon went to her little corner and was like, I'm gonna ask the white women friends who I know who are prominent to give up their Instagram accounts. And we were like, we will ask the black women who we trust, whose voices are amazing, who typically don't have these big platforms to take over these accounts. In eight days, we got 54 prominent white women to hand over their accounts to black women who have amazing stories. And for, it was on June 10th, it was a complete takeover. I'm talking, we it had- was, It was everywhere. It was everywhere. so boss. It was the most badass move. <laughs> like, and here's the thing is, they gave us their passwords. So we were in their accounts. It wasn't a, we were sending them post to post. They literally were like, here's, your, here's my password for the day my account is yours. My Instagram account is yours. Do what you would like. And I had Sophia Bush's account. She's brilliant. I love her. So I was in, you know, I was basically really encouraging her audience who, well, one, I started with who I was and like, this is who I am, you know, and just talked about why it was important to honor who you say you are, to tell the truth. But our intention was really to magnify the voices of black women and for white women who want to be allies to put some skin in the game right, to move aside for the day. And it was brilliant because the people who we matched up, we matched up all the black women with white women who we thought would be great for them to also be in relationship with. Everybody came with such open heart, open minds. It was beautiful. 
We learned a few lessons from it. It was wildly successful, but we learned that these platforms, the problem is still that our voices are not being heard partly because who gets amplified is already something that's skewed. Who gets censored is already skewed, right? Who gets their posts taken down on Instagram is skewed. So we know that there's deeper work that we have to do, but Share the Mic Now was such a moment of hope for us because it showed what it looked like for sisterhood in action. For the people who said yes to us, both on the white women's side and the black women's side, without question. It was everywhere. I think it got something like 20 billion impressions. It was nuts. Um, but what we really want is that people who have power, once again, at the, at the core of it is to say like, people who have power, how can you loan your power and loan your privilege to people who don't have it? How can you actually make moves that will allow somebody else who typically would not have the platform to be heard by the people who would typically not hear them. It was such a, an amazing um, takeover. And I didn't know that it happened in eight days. That's even more baller. That's crazy town. It was actually wild. I, I was shocked that we were able to do it. Like It was no. bonkers. And, and I, um, follow you, Bazama, Roxanne Gay, um, Ijoma Ululo, Ululo, uh, yeah. and Brene, and Glennon, and Sophia, and Ava DeVere. And so all these people, You're and I had, this, it came, it was amazing. And, and um, I just want to know, how do we keep that concept? If it was a proof of concept that um, sharing power is powerful. Yeah. You know, at the risk, uh, I, I know enough to um, get myself in trouble, and I don't want to ask you to solve the problems that the culture has presented us with, but I also want your input. Like, is there advice on how to respectfully and tactfully um, give up this power in the same way yeah. that y you and Bazama set that up? Is there a is there an analogy? Is there a uh, is there a vector? Is there a guide? Any any guidance on how to continue what you all created on June tenth yeah. going forward? The point is to center the stories and the lives of Black women, people on the marginalized fronts, like disabled people, trans people who are trans, like we want people to really figure out how to center those who are typically not. Our, a big part of our action was to make sure that the Black women were centered. I mean, down to how we did our graphics, down to how we made sure press knew. Our graphics, the Black women came first in any of the pictures. In press, none of the white women could do press without their Black partners. Because when you start getting really intentional about the world, you will start seeing how whiteness is constantly centered, just as a default. It's no one even notices it anymore because it is so centered. I'll even give you an example, Chase. I speak, I'm on stages at least 25 times a year. And you know, a lot of times I get the over-the-ear mics. I remember doing a, a speaking engagement at it was in San Francisco for a book festival. And I go backstage and they put five microphones on the desk and said, pick the one that matches you. And my jaw dropped because 
I was like, wait, this whole time, these microphones were supposed to match my skin? I just assumed, I don't know, I just, there, and it was the first time I'd ever been offered brown microphone. They were either black or tan. So they were like, yeah, pick the one that matches your skin best. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even, I didn't even know it was supposed to match me. So thinking about how just in the world we've moved throughout, whiteness is always centered, how you can get the Band-Aids that match your skin tone. We just got brown Band-Aids like last week. That's crazy. I, I, I remember that in, in, what was that, like, yeah, like not literally last week, maybe four weeks ago? Yes. And how long has a Band-Aid been around? But it's, <laughs> that's privilege, right? The yeah, things that you don't crazy. Know about, like people now, there's now brown bandages. Imagine being able to have a bandage on your skin that does not pop out to say, eh, 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 there's a scar here. You know, even that. So our point of our action is to like, how can we think through the different ways in the world where whiteness is always centered? How can we flip that? How can we for, for once make it somebody else's story, the one that's important, somebody else's skin tone, the one that's matched, somebody else's voice, the one that's heard. So in your, whatever space that you're in, Start trying to think through the intentionality and being like, wait, how am I centering the person who does not have the power typically? How do we make sure the black voices come first, the black faces come first? How do we make sure the black stories are coming first? Because it's so unequal, but we don't realize it because we just move through the world because this is the default. So that is what we want people to do. So yeah, think through like, voice is being heard in the meeting can the in, can you actually make space for the intern and say hey i want to hear what they have to say can everybody hold on for a second you know how do you make sure the person who is uh up for promotion the two people who are up for promotion who are equally qualified you're not just going with the white person because they are the culture fit right that's the way people get passed over on promotions all the time now oh this person's a better culture fit what does that mean because they went to more happy hours well maybe the person who couldn't go to happy hour had to go home because they had to go relieve their babysitter and couldn't pay extra. Like, so all of this, when you start thinking about the layers of it, artificial intelligence even, how I have a hard time getting the faucet to work because it's not programmed to recognize my skin first. It's programmed to recognize yours. So I actually have to like spend extra time trying to get it to recognize my skin as I'm rubbing it under for automatic water and I'm just like, okay, it's not working. Even that is something that people don't think about. Even our artificial intelligence is skewed to center whiteness. All of that, in all of our spaces, we gotta start thinking about and start figure out how we can undo that. I could talk to you for another four hours, <laughs> but I promise. We clearly have to do this again. For sure, and uh, it's important for us to recognize that you've got a book coming out, another one. And you're definitely coming back on the show when it's time to do that. What kind of lead times are we talking about? When is this happening? The book is actually coming out in March 2021. Boom. Nine you months. It. You heard it. Well, I will hear it first. You might have actually heard it here first. This might be the first time I'm actually publicly saying what month it's coming out. All right. All right. I can't wait. Uh, I'm going to be working out between now and then, getting ready for that day. Um, it was a long time coming, but I could not be more grateful for your time. Uh, we've pointed to a lot of different things with the book and um, your social handles, but is there anywhere in particular besides Instagram's L-U-V-V-I-E? Uh, Twitter is the same, right? You're just lovey. Yeah, I'm it, loving one word lovey everywhere. <laughs> mm, 
And that's with two V's, y'all. One U and two V's. <laughs> because thank you for calling it out, because people love putting my name L-U-U-V. And I'm like, bro, no, no. <laughs> Give me my V's. Two for victory, okay? <laughs> Anywhere else you want to want to point people? Uh, hopefully you also shared the uh, bethedomino.com. I think we saw some folks shout that out in the comments. Yeah. Um, anywhere else you'd like to steer people before we let you go? I'm just easy to find online. I want people to follow me, continue to, um, you know, just follow what I'm up to. I'm always up to a whole bunch of things. I always have something brewing and I am committed to continue to doing the work that I need to see in the world. So I basically end up writing the books that I want to read and I end up creating content that I want to consume. Um, and I'm going to keep doing that with, as much joy as I can, because we need more joy in this world, even though the world can be trash. Um, and then I'll do it while wearing some cool hats from time to time. You are, you, you do crush the hat program and the shoe program. I've seen your shoes. I've been on stage with you. Shoes, 11 out of a 10. Jerome <laughs> says, I love this. It's my first time watching you. Um, uh, what's Ken buying everything I can of yours. Creative Live, of course, want to wait for Levy's next book. Um, Karen, you have taught me so much. Thank you. Capital T capital Y. Thanks yeah. so much for being on the show. Love you. Grateful for your time. Um, and I'll look forward to our next one coming up here probably in nine months here in March. Chase, thank you for loaning your privilege in this way by having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Everyone go check out Lovey and we'll see you again, hopefully tomorrow. All right. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others and Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.